you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew 14. I'm excited about this sermon, but I'm a little bit nervous about it too, because it's a little, a little different than what I, I'm normally used to doing, but it's, it, it's one of those things, I, I mean, I don't know how many of you have had a chance to teach or preach, but sometimes an idea just kind of catches hold and can't shake it, and so you have to explore it out to the end. I hope the sermon sounds better than how I just described it, but it, that's kind of the thought process that went into it. There's, there's a couple things here that, that dovetail really neatly, but it also means that we're not going to stay in this passage much today because it's, I'm taking it more as a representative of a lot more, uh, many other passages that we find in the Gospels. Um, so now that I've thoroughly confused you, let's read God's Word together by help. All right, if you would stand as we read from God's Word, I'm going to begin in verse 22 of Matthew chapter 14. <clears throat> this is the Word of the Lord. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, please give us light to understand your word faithfully and to do with it what you would have us. To the praise of your glory and to our joy and benefit, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the two things that are dovetailing here is one, the topic of faith. I'm, I'm fascinated by this the idea of faith, in part because I, I think I've shared with you before, I come from a pretty uh, varied background um, in, terms of, in terms of churches. I was christened in the Lutheran church when I was a baby, or baptized when I was a baby in the Lutheran church. Any number of Presbyterian churches, Assemblies of God, Foursquare, non-denominational commu- uh, community churches, E-Free, all over the map. I've been all over the place. And, and that tends to take a toll on your understanding of faith. It's a bit of a, a hodgepodge, which I don't think I'm alone in having. I think faith is one of those things that we all nod our heads to and say amen, but, but if we're pressed to give a good definition, things get a little bit interesting, and then when it comes, to, comes down to those places where we need to exercise faith, things can go quickly off the rails either to our discouragement or, or to our joy. Um, so faith is, is one of the things I want to talk about this morning that this passage, I think, brings up. But also, just to be honest, this is one of those passages that really troubles me, even bugs me. And not in a way that I'm angry with it, but it just doesn't, there's something here that's, there's something more here than we tend to read at face value. There's a whole host, as I said, of passages like this in which Jesus is correcting the disciples 
on their faith. Just to remind you, just first of all, let me read the circumstances. Out of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see a variety of, of these passages in which they're out on the water during a storm, or people coming to be healed, the day of resurrection, the day of Jesus' ascension. All these situations that the disciples find themselves in with Jesus, and the end result is the same. Jesus speaking to his disciples like this. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? O you of little faith, why did you doubt? O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Or or here's a, a particularly juicy passage out of Mark 8. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? This is following the feeding of the 5,000. Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, which I think probably is closer to, they murmured under their breath, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. They said to them, do you not yet understand? And my question is, how are we supposed to read these passages? At, At face value, at first blush, they seem like this is sort of comic relief, where the disciples are the biblical version of the Keystone Cops, and they can't help but stumble over their feet. They can't help but be sort of this ridiculous example of people running way ahead of their skis and and falling on their faces constantly where Jesus has to address that. But when you listen to what Jesus is saying, it's sharper than that. There's a sharpness to what he's saying here. He's rebuking them. I forgot to mention that also the angels get into the act on this. Um, During Jesus' resurrection, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you stand looking into heaven on the day of his ascension? The sense here is something more along the lines of, what's wrong with you? Why don't you get it? How many more examples do we need to give you? There's almost a a tone of impatience even, which is strange coming from Jesus in the way that we normally think of him. But the thing that bugs me about this is that when you consider the circumstances I laid out for you, it's hard not to feel bad for the disciples, right? Why do you stand, looking, stand there looking up into heaven? Because people don't ascend. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Because we didn't think he was living. That's where we last saw him. Why are you afraid of the storm? Because we almost died. Why did you think I was a ghost? Because people don't walk on water. Why are you worried about whether or not you have bread? Because we don't have bread. Have mercy, Jesus. And he doesn't give it there. Instead of mercy, he gives them a rebuke. Which is troubling because not only when we consider the circumstances and ask what were they supposed to do, this is the point where I think why we want to think this is comic relief is because that saves us from asking the the hard question, what would I do in their place? 
Because if we don't ask that question, then it's safe to laugh at them and say, what a bunch of knuckleheads. But when you think about the conditions, the circumstances, what is he going to say differently to me? What would he say differently to me? Why didn't you believe? Because it's hard. This is impossible. This is not the way the world works. Fine, but why didn't you believe? And in doing this, and this is, this is where my background plays into it a little bit, because this is the place where a lot of my earlier influences would go with, we are, after all, just miserable Christians who can barely, you know, rub two sticks together, let alone do anything. So there is really, we, we receive Jesus' rebuke and we go away discouraged. Because after all, we're miserable sinners and thank God he gives us grace, but don't expect anything out of us. But Jesus seems to be implying that failure wasn't the only option. The rebuke is not simply, you're not like me. The rebuke is, you should have known better. You could have done differently here. I think that's important. It's important for us, not just how we read this passage, but also in how we understand faith. So let's go back to the passage. I want to look at this in a little bit more detail here. Where did things go wrong here? So we have the disciples sailing across the Sea of Galilee after the feeding of the 5,000, which, again, one of the things I think is important as we read these narrative passages is try to get into the scene as best we can. Imagine what that was like. Try try to visualize what that's like. 5,000 people, a lot of people. And we had one boy's lunch to feed a hungry crowd. And Jesus says, well, feed them. He, he's, he's setting them up for something here. And as they obey, as we, as we know, the crowds were fed. And, and it didn't just mysteriously happen. It happened right in front of them. As they were going around distributing the food, they, they saw what was happening. And when they gathered up, it just confirmed what they saw. Something happened here. This is amazing. And after that high... They get in the boat and are faced with a storm. Storm kicks up, blowing against them all night. It's tough going. It's dark. Big waves. Frustrating, discouraging, wet, cold. I mean, you can imagine. Without Jesus. Jesus stayed behind to preach. Then, sometime in the early morning, fourth watch is somewhere between three and six in the morning, they see Jesus walking on the water. This is, this is one of those places where, again, the choice is, do I go with comedy or something more? Because it would seem like, okay, if they've just seen a miracle like the feet in 5,000, seeing Jesus walk on the water should just be taken in stride, right? He's presenting him with another impossibility. This seems to be a new thing for them. And their only conclusion is it has to be a ghost. In the midst of all their other difficulties and probably fear at what the storm means for them in the middle of the the sea, they're terrified at him. And then he calls out and calms them, don't be afraid, it's me. Then Peter inexplicably calls to Jesus and asks him to invite himself to walk across the water to Jesus. He does, and Peter gets out and starts to walk across. I would love to ask Peter what was going through his head. What, 
possessed you to do this? What did you think was going to happen? Nevertheless, here we are. He's going across the water. Things are going well. And then he starts to take note of everything happening around him. I'm assuming some of you have been on water, right? Like, like, like it's easy to see from a distance, but when we're in the middle of the water and waves are big and you start to feel smaller and smaller and, and things are getting out of hand pretty quickly. This is totally understandable to me. I can, I can totally visualize the thought process here. And he shifts his eyes from Jesus and from what Jesus has done to, hey, this is not going to go well. And he sinks and he cries out and Jesus rebukes him and doesn't say, it's okay, we'll do better next time. It's what's wrong with you. And then he gets in the boat, and the storm ceases, as if to emphasize some sort of point. And they move on. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter, you should have trusted me. You should have trusted my ability. I can do this, you know? It says something both about how Jesus teaches disciples, but it also says something about us, doesn't it? This, this vast capacity to doubt in the face of evidence is stunning in Scripture, isn't it? You can go from this to that. You can feed the 5,000, but you can't walk on water. You can heal the sick, but you can't rise from the dead. Like, like the, the frameworks that they are applying to the reality that they're seeing is remarkable, but they're scrambling because there is no There's no way to make sense of this when Jesus is there because he is God and not a man. This is his world. He's not subject to it like we are. But that can be hard to see from our perspective. I can do this. You should have trusted my willingness to help. Otherwise, I wouldn't have told you to come. Don't you know that I am greater than the storm? I'm greater than the water. I'm greater than death. What does all this have to say about faith? What's he trying to say here? I would, I would propose three, three ideas beginning with unshakable confidence. Nothing, nothing remarkable here. This is one of those things I think it's more we need to hear this to be reminded of it rather than I'm not breaking new ground. But one is, first of all, an unshakable confidence in his ability. Nothing is too hard for Jesus. Nothing is too hard for God. And if we're not clear on that point, God himself says it. There is nothing too hard for me. I made all creation. What do you need me to do? I I brought things to life. What limits can you impose on that? Yeah, but this is hard. This is impossible. I don't see the way out. I don't see how you can pull this off. But it has to be an unshakable confidence in who he is and what he is able to do. How many times has he proven over and over again that he is fully capable of anything? There are no limits to him. First of all, second of all, and I would say equally important, especially for us, is an unshakable confidence in his words. Jesus doesn't waste words. He doesn't just talk. He says things that are meant to be heard and believed. What he says, therefore, comes with his full authority. If I told you to come, Peter, then you should come. If I told you to come, you should be able to come. 
Why don't you believe that? An unshakable confidence in his words. And then lastly, an unshakable confidence in his willing to do what we ask. This should be bringing in Hebrews 11 at this point. Verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, that is God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There's some beautiful passages of people approaching Jesus saying, Lord, if you're willing, heal me. And, and it is not something we should pass by easily when he responds, I am willing. He, he's not running out of healings and has to measure them out or budget them. He is willing. And what's remarkable about his ministry is how willing he was. That's what troubled people. The willingness of God poses a lot more challenges for his people than his restraining of himself. Think of Jonah. What was Jonah's big problem with God? I knew you were going to show mercy to the Ninevites. Doggone it. They're the enemy. They hate you. They hate your people. But you're sending me to proclaim their destruction so that they would turn and believe. What's wrong with you? But he wanted to show mercy to a people that, from his perspective, did not know their right hand from their left. How's the shade, Jonah? My angry prophet that deserves nothing? You want... He is willing to do what we ask. So, so first of all, faith is an unshakable confidence in his ability, in his words, in his willingness to do what we ask. And, and secondly, faith is more than a feeling. Faith is something that must be expressed. It's a, I want to build around the word resolved because I think resolved is really important. It's, it's, a, it's something that we purpose to do. It's I'm going to do this. A resolved calmness in the face of difficulties and dangers and doubts. I see what's going on around me, but I am, my faith is in Christ who knows me, who loves me, who is capable of all things, who provide for me, protect for me, guide me through things, and I will not lose heart because I am camping there. Resolved calmness in the face of difficulties. And secondly, and just as importantly, a resolved obedience to what he has said. You have to obey. Because if, if, you know, if we were to somehow gather all of us into that boat and say, well, Jesus is inviting all of us to go out in the water, we'd say, that's great. Awesome. All right, who's ready to go? I, I don't, that's not something I need to do. I trust him. There's a certain point where trust has to be lived out. You can say all you want that you believe, but believe requires an expression. Otherwise, it's just words. Do you believe this? Then your life should reflect that belief. Peter, do you believe that you can come out to me when I say come? Get out of the boat. I was thinking about that today. I, I mean... This has been a long time now. This tells you how long, how, how long my connection with this area goes. I still, to this day, have thoughts when I drive across the bridge over there of that section dropping. Is that too soon still? Or too long ago? Like, how do you know? How do you know what's, what's going to happen? This feels sturdy, but man, that one day. But, but, but because I trust that 
that the Department of Transportation, hoping against hope, have done their job, that I can drive across without fear. And I prove that by doing that regularly without hesitating. How much more do we express that faith in Christ? The surprising thing, surprising thing out of all, well, actually, before I get to this point, one last point on this. More than a feeling in that it is also, it's a resolve that is built on the foundational, foundational truth that Jesus is God. It's a grounded truth and not faith in our feelings of that fact. It's not how I feel. It's reaching beyond ourselves. That is true whether I believe it or not. Whether I believe that bridge will hold the weight of my car or not, I'm going to drive over it. I can't see it. I don't need to do an inspection every time. But I can drive with confidence over that bridge because I know they've done their work. Hopefully. But we're talking about human beings rather than God. How much more can we build on who Christ is and what he has said? But here's a surprising thing. So, so the passages we've looked at have highlighted the failure of the disciples to do this. But the interesting thing is that when you go through scriptures again, that there are a number of people that Jesus meets along the way that get it. The centurion, Matthew 8 or Luke 7, comes to Jesus, not a disciple, not a Jew. A Roman centurion comes to him, asking for Jesus to heal his daughter. And Jesus says, okay, I'll come with you. And he says, no need. I get how this works. I'm a person who understands how authority plays out. And I know that all you need to do is say the word and she'll be fine. And Jesus, again, this is a a phrase that might pass over too quickly. Jesus is amazed. I have never seen faith like this in Israel. That, that's for the disciples' benefit, I think. Are you hearing this? I just have to say the word, and he believes that it will happen. I say the word to you, and you're like, hmm. But that's hard. That's difficult. That's impossible. How, how is this going to happen? Why is the centurion getting it and not you guys? In fact, he then goes on to warn them, Israel, look out, because there are people outside of the people of God who will demonstrate greater faith than you and may, in fact, actually take your place. This centurion is an example of faith, Israel. This centurion is an example of faith, disciples. He's teaching you. Or the Canaanite woman. Matthew 15, again, just an amazing story because here's a woman coming asking for help and the disciples like, Jesus, get rid of her. And his response is cold. I haven't come for anybody but the people of Israel. Sorry, not for you, but she won't let go. Please help me. I'm coming for the people of Israel. Yes, but even the dogs eat the scraps from the table. And then that determination, that belief that Jesus could do what she needed and would be willing if she persevered, said, because of your faith, you're healed. The Canaanite woman gets it. 
The, the friends of the paralyzed man who have come in, believing that Jesus could heal them, bust into this house with a man on a mattress, on a, on a bed, believing they could be healed. And on the basis of their faith, Jesus tells the paralyzed man, get up, you're healed. Here's three examples which could be multiplied in the Gospels, contrasting the disciples who are just, for some reason they can't put it together, and these people, are just, it just seems so obvious. He's the Messiah. Ask Him. He can do this. Go to Him. And He does. So what do we do with this contrast? How do we, how do we think about this? Uh, two, two possibilities, I, I think. Maybe you can come up with more. Maybe we've been wrong to assume that physical proximity to Jesus will always lead to better faith. That, that lands with a lot of the Christians and churches that I grew up with. Oh man, the ideal situation for me as a Christian would be to live in the time of Jesus, which no doubt would have been amazing. But if you think that would have been a boost to your faith, consider the disciples. They walked with him, they ate with him, they, they were opposed alongside him. They heard what he said. They saw what he did. They, they saw remarkable things, and yet they failed to, failed to see what the, what the centurion saw, what the Canaanite woman saw. It's almost as though the disciples had begun to take Jesus for granted. Which, again, is one of those things that when you think about, again, this capacity to live in proximity to something great or something wonderful and be indifferent. I mean, I'm guilty of that. I lived in Bellingham for 14 years. You know how many times I went up to Mount Baker? I can count on about two hands. Not even once a year. Why? Well, because it's always there. Yeah, it's great. It's beautiful. I love it when I go up there. I always, when I go up there, I ask myself, why don't I go up more? But I don't. And we do that all over the place. I imagine the people outside of Yosemite National Park feel the same way about the park. Yeah, it's one of the most amazing places on earth, but it's right there. We'll get there sometime, plus all the tourists, you know. It's, it's, I think Parisians feel that way about the Eiffel Tower. I think Londoners feel that way about Westminster Abbey. When it's close to you, when it's around you all the time, it diminishes in value. I remember a couple of... Uh, couple... <laughs> 15 years ago or so, we went on a cruise up to Alaska, um, with my grandmother and family, and there was all these people lining the ship as we're driving through this passage, and they're all remarking about, oh, look at all the deer and look at all the eagles. And I'm just like, these are the crows and squirrels of where I live. You can have them. The Deers are not majestic to me. Eagles, less so. They're, they're scavengers. They're glorified crows, but... But when you don't see them, when you're not around them, it hits you differently. And there's something maybe about their proximity to Jesus that worked against their ability to believe him. Or, or maybe they haven't come to the place because they were with him where they actually needed his help. Because that seems to be a common denominator with all these other people. It's like they needed him. Answer me. I need this. I have nowhere else to go. I have no other options. Only you can help. Or, or maybe we've overcomplicated faith. Because when you look at these examples, it doesn't seem that hard. They come, they ask, and receive. 
There's no, there's no special wording. There, there's not a requisite number of times that they have to ask the same thing. They, they don't seem to ask in any sort of uniform way. They just come and out of their hearts say, God, help me. Jesus, help me. And he responds. Maybe we've made more of this than it really is. Now nah, we don't overcomplicate things. That's silly. So what do we do with this? What do we do, what do, we do with this? Luke's gospel. In fact, turn there. Luke's gospel, chapter 18. Jesus was, this is what I was nervous about. Is that the way I'm approaching is kind of leading to sort of jumping all over scripture. But I hope you see the, the line running through all this. Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, we see Jesus teaching his disciples about prayer. He he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He uses his prayer about a woman and an unjust judge. This woman needed justice. We aren't told what it is, but she was in need. He was her last hope. The unfortunate thing for this woman was that this judge was a creep. He did not care. She was of no account to him. He could not be troubled with her. But instead of getting discouraged, she pressed on. Give me what I want. Give me justice. Day and night. Every day. Same thing. He could not get away from her. And finally said, because I just want relief from this woman, I will give her what she wants. And Jesus, I think, very quickly says, do not suppose God is like that. He loves his children, and he will give them what they need quickly. But he says something interesting at the end. Not only does he pose the question, won't God treat his people better than this judge? But second, he adds this at the end. Will the Son of Man find faith on earth when he returns? That connection between faith and prayer, I think, is really important here. See if I can can thread the needle here in a minute. But, But he is... The first thing to note here is that he's hinting at his departure in saying this. I'm leaving you soon. So this prayer thing is going to be an important part for you, important piece for you to, to continue in faith. I'm no longer going to be with you. So prayer, you ought to pray and not lose heart, not get discouraged. Will you maintain your trust in me? Will you maintain your trust in my Father when I'm gone? I think in setting it up this way, Jesus is recognizing that this is going to be more difficult for his disciples when he's gone. Which, not coincidentally, is why we see him at the end of John's gospel blessing those who believe in him without having seen him. Remember Thomas? Unless I put my my fingers in his side and in the holes in his hands, I won't believe. When Jesus shows up and presents himself, he falls down like, my Lord, my God, he says, You see and you believe. Blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. That's us. So so all of a sudden, prayer isn't just something that we as Christians should do. Prayer becomes a central component to our expression of faith in God. And I dare say, he expects the same faith of us as he did from his disciples back then. We'll explore this connection a little bit more. There, there are some tendencies here that I think have done a lot of harm to our understanding of faith and prayer, particularly. First two kind of go together. One is that 
some seem to believe that there is a direct proportion between the amount that a person prays and the amount of faith that they have. That's where I think a lot of the prayer warrior kind of talk goes. We, and you see, I, I see this a lot where, where I work. Um, somebody at some point, it's just inevitable, somebody at some point is going to find that Martin Luther, at the start of his day, prayed for some, something like four or 28 hours. I forget what it is. It's some high watermark for this is what you should pray and and immediately you're thinking so I can't sleep or eat and I have to work a half shift in order to meet the prayer amount that Luther a monk is doing to kind of be reach some level of holiness or faithfulness not so there is nothing in scripture that equates how long we pray or how many times we pray with faithfulness itself that should be a relief. It, people who think that way just don't seem to understand that there was real lives that people had. They had real jobs. They were largely subsistent farmers. They were constantly working. There is no time to spend on a prey vacation. Never mind the fact that there was no vacations back then, let alone weekends. So they had to be faithful in prayer somehow in and around all the other responsibilities that they had. So that that hopefully is helpful to just recognize that. The danger for us in the Reformed tradition, I think, is in the opposite direction. Same same tendency, but in the opposite direction in the sense that we use theology to either rationalize a diminished view of prayer because God is sovereign. He knows what we want. I feel like I'm just telling God what he already knows. And we know what those people are like. I don't want to bother God. I don't want to annoy God. He's got this. He's probably already answered it. And I, he's already answered before I even expressed it. In fact, I can find scriptures that sort of proof that. So we don't. We have a vague sense of God knows and prayer becomes sort of a, a useless appendage in some of our lives sometimes in my life. Both of these make the same error in that they put the focus on the person praying rather than on the person being prayed to. So I can use a really catchy title. What is the purpose of prayer? Or what is the key to understanding prayer? So we're praying to Jesus. Not we're praying to Jesus. We're praying to Jesus. That's the core of prayer. We are expressing our faith and trust in Christ, our unshakable confidence in Christ's ability, our unshakable confidence in his goodwill towards us. There's a third thing to note, is that we, and it's sort of the, the elephant in the room when we get to this point, is that we get easily discouraged with prayer because we don't get what we want. There is a response to this that I think response to this that I think is unhelpful, and that's simply well, we need to pray according to what God wants, which can sound like God doesn't give a rip about what we want. God has His agenda, and sorry about your life, you need to get on board with Him. That is a distortion of God, of God that needs to be rejected. That is not what's happening here. But what needs to happen is what I think Paul is saying in Romans twelve. 
that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that as we grow as Christians, as God continues the sanctifying work in our lives, that our desires, our wants, our needs become reframed according to God. That's why we don't, on the one hand, go with prosperity gospel folks, especially the more ridiculous ones, where faith and prayer are, in, are, are used to get wealth and comfort and security and fame. Nothing could be further from God's will because that would put us as a con, uh, that, that would put us in company or competition with Him. God is God. We are mere creatures. But that's good for us to be reminded of. But each of those people, the centurion, the Canaanite woman, um, the third person. Friends of Paralegal. Thank you. Good job. See if you're paying attention. All right. Uh, what's my point? What's my point? Come back to me. Um, gosh. You get up ahead of steam and then you just lose it. It's there. It's there. Oh, here's the thing. None of those people said, God, I, I know you, uh, Jesus, I know you know all things. And I know I'm a mere centurion, a mere Canaanite woman, and my desires are obviously less than what you desire for things. So I want to work carefully with you to understand what you would like for my life in contrast to what I would prefer for my life. For example, my daughter needs healing. Now that's what I want, but if that's a fleshly desire, please correct me and you do your will. There's none of that kind of gyration that we normally do in prayer. My daughter is sick. Please heal her. That, that aligns straight on with God's will. We don't even have to waste time with that. A child needs help. We're lost. We know people are sick. We know people who are lost. We have a child who's walking from the faith. We live amongst an unbelieving people that we are called to spread the gospel to. Lord, have mercy on them. Open their hearts. There, you don't need to work hard. There's no complicated math to understand that that is within God's will clearly. So we don't need to even hesitate or, or do any other bizarre gyrations and, and, and word sandwiches that somehow thinks we, we get God to move or somehow what we want sincerely and rightly, God will look at and say, give me a break. That's Your daughter's sick? Come on, there's bigger fish to fry. Not with God. <laughs> so we saw last time I preached, he sees us as a father, sees his child with compassion. He loves us. He's given us all things, which is the dangerous thing for us at Reformed types, because now if we start reading the scripture through that lens and we see Jesus saying things like, if you ask anything in my name, anything in my name, I might give it to you if it aligns with my program. No, he says, you will get it. If my words remain in, if your words, if my words remain in you and you remain in me, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. There becomes a sort of ludicrous, the stores are open to my people, ask, and I will give it swiftly, and I will give it abundantly. What do you need? Dare we ask? 
Dare we believe? And come, come back to that idea of need for a moment and, and just ask yourself this. I mean, how many times do we pray and hedge our bets? What I mean is, how many times do we pray and then we take some things into our own hands to kind of provide a second option so that in case God doesn't come through, we've got it, hopefully. Fingers crossed. That's pagan. That diminishes God. I think that's why the doubt thing is so important to Jesus, because that not only does that call God into question, but it also brings with us the suggestion that there's a better way if he doesn't come through. Do you not know who I am? I'm not like you. You've never met anyone like me. I will not fail you. My love for you is beyond anything you have ever known. I am committed to you to the end. I have all mercy and grace for you. What do you want? When Jesus comes, will he find faith? Will we believe? So, in closing, I want to ask to consider this question again of what what is the faith that Jesus requires of us? What have we, how have we lived it so far? How have we understood it so far? And how do we change this? Where we, where Jesus is at the center of the picture and not the problem. Jesus is at the center of the picture and not the circumstances. That, That there is a sense in which we need to humble ourselves and do what he says. Come to me. Seek me. Ask me. What do you want? What can I do? Do you believe that? It's in the process of of that kind of approach to Christ in prayer that we not only see him prove himself again and again and therefore grow in him, but we also see him, learn more about him, grow in our love for him. Let's close in prayer.